Section 34 of the Early Hanoverians by Edward Ellis Morris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Book 3, Chapter 4, French Literature, Voltaire and Rousseau, Part 2. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, whose name is thus coupled with that of Voltaire, died within five weeks of Voltaire's death. But he was a much younger man. Voltaire was eighty-four, Rousseau only sixty-six when he died. In 1712, Rousseau was born at Geneva, where his father was a watchmaker, and for a while a dancing master. His mother died shortly after his birth, and the boy had a very strange bringing up. When he was only ten, his father ran away from Geneva to escape the consequences of an assault upon an officer. An uncle took the neglected boy, and after a couple of years' education, which Rousseau never valued, apprenticed him first to a notary, who regarded him as hopelessly stupid, and then to an engraver who treated him with such cruelty that at length the boy ran away. From this time forward, for many years, he was a vagabond on the face of the earth, always moving from place to place, from employment to employment. Now he pretended to be a convert to Catholicism, then he became a servant. Next he gave lessons in music, of which he knew but little. Then he turned tutor, but for this occupation he lacked patience. He acted as a secretary, as a surveyor's clerk, a copier of music. He gained his livelihood in various ways, but was constant to nothing long. His nature was undisciplined, and his own confession ran. When my duty and my heart were at variance, the former seldom got the victory. To act from duty in opposition to inclination I found impossible. Rousseau was nearly forty before he became an author. The Academy of Dijon had offered a prize for an essay on the question, Has the progress of the arts and sciences helped to corrupt or to purify morals? Rousseau determined at once to compete and to take the line that progress had corrupted morals. The result was that Rousseau won the prize and that his essay, when published, brought him great fame. He had attacked literature. This attack made him a man of letters. He had attacked society, and this attack made him the darling of society. Ten years of wandering but in better circumstances passed after this essay, which made Rousseau famous in his own day. Then he published the first of the three books on which his later reputation rests, and within another eighteen months the last. They are called The New Eloise, The Social Contract, and Emile. The New Eloise, or Julie, may be described as a sentimental novel written in the form of letters. The original Eloise was a young woman of rank, who in the twelfth century was taught by the famous schoolman Abelard. Their love and their misfortunes became famous. So in this story a fierce passion of love arose between a tutor and his pupil, a baron's daughter. Of course the father indignantly refused the tutor. This gave Rousseau an opportunity to express his sentiments hostile to rank. These views had then the charm of novelty, but have now become almost commonplace. The lady afterwards marries, and after a while renews a pure friendship for her former tutor. 
The chief notes of the book are the description of passionate love on both sides, traced through many phases, the numerous attacks on existing customs and social relations, in which Rousseau speaks his own sentiments in the person of the tutor, and the praises of simple, especially of country life. It has been observed that Rousseau was the first to awaken that love for the picturesque in nature which has distinguished so many writers since his time, but which is conspicuously absent from literature before his time. The second of Rousseau's triad of books was The Social Contract. The main doctrine of this political treatise was not new, and came from English writers, especially from Locke. Inquirers had been asking, what was the origin and what the basis of government? This sum found in the divine right of kings, that is to say they believed that God appointed kings to govern. Those who did not like this doctrine held that government depended on the mutual agreement of the governed. This agreement was the social contract, implied if not actually made. But it follows that if one party break the contract, the other party is absolved from it. As the king promises good government, the people promise obedience. But if the government be bad, then the people need no longer obey. One can easily see how this little book had a potent influence amidst the various forces which produced the French Revolution. The second title of Emile is Education. The book is a protest against the prevailing methods of education and is in favor of greater simplicity and more natural treatment of children. Beginning at the very beginning, Rousseau protests against swaddling clothes and wishes mothers to nurse their own children. Emile is a boy brought up on the methods of which Rousseau approves. His training is to serve as a model. It need hardly be said that the child has no luxuries, goes barefoot, has to learn to bear pain, especially pain which is the consequence of his own acts. There is to be no other punishment than this natural consequence of acts. The child is to be encouraged to ask questions of every kind, and should receive practical answers, not merely in words. Not until twelve is the boy to be taught to read, and he is to be taught a handicraft as soon as he is able to acquire it. All knowledge of religion is to be kept from him whilst he is young, and Rousseau's own views on that subject are given in a famous episode of the book called The Confessions of a Savoyard Vicar. His tutor follows Emile into society in Paris, where he remains pure amidst its corruptions. Afterwards, a wife, Sophie, is found for him amid country surroundings, and of course the finding of Sophie involves a discourse on the education of girls. The manifest fault of the book is that the education which at first began with such remarkable freedom ends in constant leading strings. One begins to wonder what Emile would be like without his tutor constantly at his elbow. Few books, however, have ever had so strong an influence, and many improvements in education may be traced back to the publication of Emile. Rousseau's great work was to summon mankind back to greater simplicity of life and to the study of first principles. The effects of his teaching were often very valuable, and it is a question how far he can be held responsible for the excesses into which men claiming to be his followers were led. If his doctrine be summarized in the two words, follow nature, it is essential 
that we should understand what is meant by nature. We have a habit of describing a man without his clothes as in a state of nature, but if man has within him instincts and feelings that teach him it is better to clothe himself, a man is more truly following his nature when he has dressed himself. The savage life is not of necessity more natural than the civilized, because it is his higher and not his lower nature that man must follow. In the confessions of a Savoyard vicar, Rousseau's teaching may be said to have been equally removed from the orthodox dogmas of the church, Catholic or Protestant, and from the skeptical teaching of the philosophers of his day. The vicar believes earnestly in the existence and in the goodness of God, but he does not accept revealed religion, although he allows himself always outwardly to conform. The result of this teaching was that the author was persecuted and was only feebly defended by the philosophers. When a young man, Rousseau had gone through the form of conversion to Catholicism. In the first blush of his literary fame, he wished to be a citizen of Geneva and went through the form of conversion to Protestantism. The book Emile was burnt by order of the Parliament of Paris. It was burnt by order of the Council of Geneva. Rousseau was driven from France, he was driven from Switzerland, and took refuge in Neuchâtel, which then belonged to Prussia. King Frederick, though he did not like Rousseau, was willing to protect him, but the inhabitants of the place where he was living, being stirred up by the Orthodox, used violence against him. At length he determined to go to England. Here he was treated with the greatest kindness, especially by David Hume, the historian and philosopher, who procured him a pension from the government of George III. But a suspicious spirit from which Rousseau was always suffering, and more and more in his later years, embittered his relations even with Hume. After a sojourn of sixteen months he fled from England. The later years of his life were very unhappy. He was almost out of his mind, and over his death there hangs a suspicion of suicide. It was during this last sad period that he wrote his autobiography under the title of Confessions. It is tolerably certain that, so written, they contain as much of imagination as of truth. It is curious that both Voltaire and Rousseau paid a long visit to England, the former deriving more advantage therefrom than the latter. Englishmen do not look upon the reign of the first two Georges as a glorious time, yet at that very time leading thinkers of the continent were inclined to look upon England as a kind of promised land, a land of liberty and progress. This was especially the case with Montesquieu. Charles Seconda, Baron de Montesquieu, was born near Bordeaux in 1689, exactly a century before the French Revolution, and just as the English Revolution, the effects of which he afterwards admired so much, was being completed. He was a French country gentleman trained to the law, who at an early age became president of the Parliament of Bordeaux, a provincial law court of considerable importance. A book which he wrote called Les Lettres Persanes, a lively and very witty book, brought him great fame. This book was one of the first to make a farcical correspondence between foreigners a vehicle for satire on the country in which the book is published. 
The foreigner is astonished at the many things that he sees, customs, institutions, religion, and the explanations that he receives can easily be made an opportunity for biting satire. The success of this book determined Montesquieu to devote himself to literature, but before writing more he travelled through various countries, Austria, Hungary, Italy, Holland, England. In the last country he stayed two years. He was full of admiration for all that he saw. Probably no foreigner ever felt a heartier appreciation of the English constitution and of the toleration the civil and religious liberty enjoyed in England and perhaps few Englishmen. On returning to France, Montesquieu retired from society and lived a studious life amid quiet country surroundings. Many years later, in 1748, the year of the Peace of Aix-la-Chapelle, Montesquieu published his great work, L'Esprit des Lois. The levity of tone which marked his earlier book is gone and has been replaced by a dignity worthy of a judge. This book is written with calmness and moderation. If when it first appeared it was unheeded, if in the revolution its moderate reforms were left far behind, after the oscillations of the pendulum had ceased, then men appreciated the balanced judgment of Montesquieu. Nowhere was his book more admired than by the best English thinkers. Edmund Burke was warm in its praise. End of section 34. Recording by Pamela Nagami in Encino, California, in the year of the plague, 2020. End of the Early Hanoverians by Edward Ellis Morris.